So Psalm 92, I want to begin this evening and really begin our evening gatherings together looking at uh, this psalm. And as I read it for us, I'm sure you'll, you'll see why uh, we picked this psalm for tonight. It's an easy choice for us. This is a, a psalm for the Sabbath, uh, the only psalm that uh, has this designation, actually. Uh, out of all 150, this is a song for the Sabbath. Uh, so hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 92. This is a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of the Lord. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So this psalm really has three basic parts to it, and I want us just to walk through the psalm together and look at these different parts. And the first thing we see right away is what we are called to do, and this is what uh, typifies our existence. This is what um, is, is uh, the, the model for a Christian's life, and this is specifically, really, especially how our Sabbath Uh, day is to be governed, and that is a day of giving thanks and praise to God. So right away in these first four verses, uh, we we see how we are to give thanks and we are to sing praises to the name of the Lord. And in fact, I'm going to jump down to verse 15, and we see that this is even our our purpose. This this is what we end up doing as well. Verse 15 says that uh, all this happens in order that we might declare who God is, that he is upright in all his ways, that he is our rock, uh, that there is no unrighteousness in him. But we'll come back to that verse. But look at this, this beginning here, and we see right away some of the Hebrew parallelism here, where the psalm says that it is good. Well, what is good? It is good to give thanks. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, and to sing praises to your name almost high. So right away we see that, that parallelism there, where the first line and the second line complement each other. It is good to give thanks, and to give thanks is in parallel to uh, singing praises. And the Lord, then, is in parallel to almost high. So it is good to give thanks and to sing the praises of the Lord, the most high God. We see this kind of parallelism all throughout this, this psalm. 
And so he goes on and he says in verse 2 then, continuing this, this parallel thought, not only is it good to give thanks and to sing praises, but it's also good to declare your steadfast love and your faithfulness both in the morning and at night. And so right away we see this, this beautiful biblical rhythm of morning and evening. This kind of rhythm that exists everywhere in Scripture, all the way back to the very beginning, the creation account, where God creates all things, and there's evening and there's morning. And this is the rhythm of our lives, morning and evening, day and night, all of these things. And so we see this right away here in this psalm. Now, what we need to understand, this, this kind of phrase, it, it does give us this, this kind of rhythm, but the idea here is that it, it's an all-day kind of thing. It's an all-day affair. There, there isn't a day, there isn't an hour where we shouldn't be living before the face of God, where we shouldn't be uh, uh, keeping our minds on Him or offering up prayers to Him or thanksgivings to Him. Now, that happens in the margins of the day. It's not, uh, we don't spend all 24 hours in a prayer closet. We, we sleep, we eat, we go to work, we do all these things. But, but we do that in such a way that our, our minds are focused on God and all those things. He's at the center of our lives. He's at the forefront of our lives. And this is true every day of the week, but even more so in a special way on the Lord's Day. On this day that He gives us where we can worship and rest in Him. And so we see this is the usefulness of the evening gathering. It, it helps us to structure our day in such a way that we are truly resting uh, from all the cares of the world. You know, that, that really is what that, that day of rest is, is, is getting at. That we would just, for, for one day, put those things out of our mind and out of our concern and focus on the Lord, focus on the things that are eternal. And this helps us to do that. That's why some will refer, and I, I like this uh, phrase, to refer to morning and evening as the, those, those, as the divine bookends for the day. They help us to structure that day in such a way uh, that we, we give that day to the Lord. Well, why is it so important that we spend this time, morning, evening, that we spend this day considering God's works, singing His praises? Why is this so important that we do that? And we see the answer to that in the following verses. The psalm answers this question because of what our predicament is, of the situation that we are in. And so we see this in verses 5 through 11. He begins to talk about the kind of situation that we find ourselves in. Well, what is this situation that we're in? Well, it's obvious. We just look around and we see that our world is marred by sin that we are faced with all kinds of suffering and trials and, and grief. We suffer loss. We suffer all these things that should not have been but are because of sin. And so the psalmist, he, he's questioning this. And he turns, and he turns to God, and he considers, How great are your works, O Lord? Your thoughts are very deep. He has to turn here. Because everywhere else he looks, nothing makes sense. He talks about how the wicked are flourishing. They're, they're like uh, the wicked in verse 7. They sprout like grass and all the evildoers flourish. Now maybe that analogy doesn't make sense to us in this immense heat wave we've had. And we don't have grass that really flourishes or sprouts that well. 
But this is the picture that he sees all around him. And we know elsewhere in the Psalms that uh, the question always comes back to, why do the wicked prosper? And, and why are we suffering in this way? Lord, we long to be with you. We long for all these wrongs to be made right. Wrongs from our past, uh, just the effects of sin that result in loss and heartache. The brokenness when we sin against each other and we, we hate that we do and we, we don't do the things we want to do and we do the things that we don't want to do. And on top of it all, we have these stupid and foolish people, as the psalmist describes them, you know, elsewhere in the Psalms, it says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what do we say when we see people saying this? God, this person doesn't even acknowledge your existence, and yet he's flourishing. He, he's, he's doing so well in life. How do we make sense of this? This is what the psalmist tells us to do, to find this understanding of, of our situation is to look to Christ, to look to God, to consider his works, to consider his thoughts. So that's what the Christian is to do, is to constantly go back to God's word, go back to what God has done, go back to the promises in Scripture. How great are your works, O Lord? And to remind ourselves of what Scripture promises, which is summarized in verses 10 and 11. This is what's true of the Christian. Even though all the, the evildoers, they flourish, they, their end is destruction. And this is what's true of the Christian. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. This is what God has promised of us, promised to us these rich spiritual blessings that he pours out over us, that he, he exalts us. He does lift up our head. He's, he's a God that loves to lift up the brokenhearted and, and the, the weak. He, he brings down the proud, but he lifts up the humble. This is what our God does. And so why would we neglect these amazing, wonderful promises that he has for us? Why would we not want to consider all that he has said, all that he has done for us? But it's so often that we can forget God's works, that we can forget his thoughts, that we can forget all these things. It's attributed to Martin Luther. I don't know if he said it. Uh, but he said that we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And that's so true. And so morning by morning, morning and evening, we need to hear of God's amazing works for us. And so this is what's promised of us in the Psalms. We, we see what we are called to do. We see uh, where we can go to find understanding. And we also see how when we, we go to God and when we, we pursue these uh, spiritual benefits from Him, that this is where our spiritual growth happens. And this is the great promise that we have. So I love this promise at the end of the Psalm, and we'll consider these verses here. Verses 12 through 15. Here again we have some parallel, uh, ver uh, some parallel statements in these verses. But this is what happens to the righteous. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. 
That's what happens to the righteous. That's the promise. You can see the distinction that's being made. The wicked, yes, they do sprout up very quickly. They have immense growth. But they are grass. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But what God is planting among his people are oak trees. They're strong cedars with with deep roots. Just take time to grow. But they're the ones that will stand. They're the ones that will last. And notice where these trees are planted. Verse 13, where are these trees planted? They are planted in the house of the Lord, and they flourish in the courts of the God. That is where we must be planted. We can be planted nowhere else. And truly, if we, if we think about it, where else could we go? Where else could we be planted where we could gain and the kind of, of, of uh, spiritual nourishment that we need to bear any fruit? I was reading Spurgeon on this uh, psalm, and he, he says this, that much depends upon the soil in which a tree is planted. Everything, in our case, depends upon our abiding in the Lord and deriving all our supplies from Him. You see, we can seek to plant ourselves and take root in the world. We can plant ourselves somewhere else. We can, we can make something or someone or some other institution the center of our lives, and we can try to plant deep roots there. Whatever that might be, our, our careers, our own hobbies and recreations, even our own families, any of these things where we're trying to put a burden upon something that only Christ can carry, that only He can bear. You see, none of those other plots of land and the soil in them can provide the nutrients to grow a healthy tree bearing much fruit. It's only in the house of God and in the rich soil of Christ that strong trees can grow. That's what we see here. And so we ask ourselves, where have we we planted ourselves? Have we let ourselves become planted somewhere else other than the Word of God, other than the household of God. It must be in God's house. And we think, and I can't help but think of of our own children and our own child, unborn that he or she is at this point. But where will they be planted? And I love this promise in, in verse 14. This is what happens to the trees that are planted in the house of God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green. Now, we can all think of examples where, unfortunately, there are those, and we think of covenant children who have walked away from the faith, and we pray to them, and we trust in the Lord, and we know that the Lord always does what's right, and we give it up to Him. Nevertheless, we we plant deep roots in the house of the Lord. So we ask ourselves that question. You know, how did we get to this kind of point? How did we get to this kind of situation we're in? Is it possible that some of this moral decay that we're seeing in our society is, is because we have sought to plant ourselves Christians, churches? We've thought that we could extend some roots, maybe only half of them, maybe a few of them, outside of God's house and, and reap some of the nutrients and benefits of the world. Is that possible? 
And it is, is it any wonder that we see the decline in our society when we have literally been starving ourselves spiritually? I don't know how else to, to put that, but it's so evident in our churches. And but for the grace of God, so too would we go. But may it not be true here. And what would it look like then for us here tonight if we would be so dedicated to plant deep roots in the house of God? To plant roots deep into Christ and into His Word, to drink deep of the storehouses of His riches and His grace, and to soak everything, water everything that we do in prayer. That's my prayer for us this evening, that we would be a church that would do that. And my desire for Christ the King, for for us here, for our children, for the next generation, that we would all come to plant ourselves deep in the Word of God. And so that as we grow, and long after we're all gone, and our children are growing up, and their children, and the next generation after that, that they would all bear fruit, as it says, full of sap and green. So that, this is the goal, Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. That's the goal. That it would be said of all of us long after we're all gone, that those people at Christ the King, this is what they do. They declare that the Lord is upright. They declare that Christ is their rock, their refuge, their Savior. That they declare that he is perfect and holy, that there is no unrighteousness in him. That's what we're all about. May it be so. Would God be so gracious to give us that legacy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be planting us deep uh, here at Christ the King, that you'd be giving us deep roots that drink deep from the bottomless riches of your glory and your grace toward us. Lord, you've given us your word. What a privilege it is to study your word this evening. And we pray that you would stir in us and these, these small, uh, feeble flames of our hearts, that you would fan them by your spirit to, to aliven our hearts, to, to inflame our desires towards you and our affections towards you. So please, as we turn our attention now to requests and to lift up our praises and petitions to you, uh, may you be gracious to hear them, to answer them. And Lord, we know that uh, all things uh, work together for your glory and our good. So help us to trust in you with all of these things we have before us tonight. We pray all of this in your mighty name.